While you're turning to Romans 8, I have my word of greeting to those you've already heard. The wonderful name of our Savior Jesus. I have some historical curiosity. I was wondering how many Sundays it took at Metropolitan Tabernacle London before they stopped referencing the death of Spurgeon, their pastor, who had died on the last day of January in 1892 in Menton, France. I, I, I doubt if that data is recoverable. I think we probably could, if we did our homework and asked enough people, we could discover how many Sundays it took in, at Bellevue Baptist Church before no one made a reference to the death of Adrian Rogers. Of course, Adrian had already officially passed the baton. But I'm sure that it must have taken several Sundays for, for no one to mention him. And blessedly, our, our pastor, God willing, is, is coming back. But we've uh, been operating under a pretty dark cloud here. And today's not the day we won't mention it. And I don't think next Sunday will be the day that we... Don't mention it. As far as anything I can say about that, I'll, I'll tell you that when my son was an eighth grade football player at ECS, they were playing a game at Christian Brothers. Um, he was a lineman like me, although he was much smaller than me, and, and, uh, which means that nobody on his side would ever give him the ball, but sometimes, wonderfully, somebody on the other side would accidentally give him the ball. And, and he uh, picked up a fumble in the backfield of Christian Brothers, and he took off down the uh, field. Nothing, nobody was in front of him. And after 12 or 15 yards, he was tackled from behind. And when I was driving him home that day, I said, uh, Son, um, you had that ball in your hands, and the goal line was in front of you, and there wasn't any player, there was only daylight in front of you. What did you think? And he didn't even hesitate. He said, I thought, I wish I was fast. You know what, I, I wish I was profound. I wish I was powerfully godly. I wish I could say something about the events of January 17th that would make everything okay. But I'm not. And I can't. But I know where to point you. Now, in the passage I've been assigned, there's the word predestinate. And I happen to know that Jamie agonized and prayed over where we should go. We weren't going to go back to Judges in the shadow of this tragedy. And the Lord led him to, to Romans 8. But I also know that he didn't go to Romans 8 so that I could start a fight over the doctrine of, of predestination. So I'm, I'm pretty much going to dodge that. I'll say just enough about foreknowledge to get myself in trouble with a lot of people. But um, we need to leave those big controversies to the lead pastors. <laughs> lead pastors, especially lead pastors who are founders, especially lead pastors who are founders who are recovering from grave injuries are pretty much bulletproof. And when Kenneth steps back up here, he can say 
lots of stuff that you violently disagree with and you're going to sit there and say, isn't he wonderful? <laughs> Are we glad he's here? Whereas an associate, an associate pastor is an especially rich, target-rich environment. You know, we sort of have bullseyes uh, plastered on both sides. So uh, I'll probably take the cowardice route. But I, I, will, I, will say some, uh, I will say some things you're not going to like uh, once we get to uh, not an entire coward. Beginning in verse 26, we're going to go to verse 30. Romans 8, in honor of God and His Word, would you stand? For the reason. Hear the word of God. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts, that's God the Father, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, that's God the third person, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now one of the most famous verses in the New Testament, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Father, thank You for these words. Show us what they mean. Show us why they matter. For Christ's sake, in this dark hour, we ask it. Amen. Please be seated. So I, I wasted an awful lot of time uh, in the first service talking about popular culture. I'm not going to do that this time in case somebody remarks to you from the first service about what I said about the Beatles or what I said about Johnny B. Good or what I said about Bob Dylan. Don't be mystified and think that they went to the wrong church. But I'm not going to talk about that. I will say this about uh, popular culture. Um, there's a, a television series on the BBC called Poirot, and it's about Agatha Christie's Belgian detective. And um, the man who plays Poirot is an English actor called David Suchet. David Suchet is an evangelical Christian. Like our pastor, I think one, one of his parents is Jewish. But he's a believer. He became a believer by reading a Gideon's Bible in a hotel room. And the chapter that converted him was Romans 8. The first instrument for discipleship that Bill Garner ever chose was a book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. Most contemporary Christian books are not going to be read 50 years from now. And... Um, Packer, the book was published, I think, in the U.S. in, in 1972. It's still being read. You, we ought to read it every year. It's that good. Jai Packer said that Romans 8 is the most important chapter in the New Testament. Romans 8 is a golden jewel box 
just stuffed with diamonds, fretted with platinum. Now, Paul's motive in writing Romans 8 was not so we could start a fight about whether it's the decision of man which is decisive in salvation or the predestination of God, the decree of God in eternity past that's, in, uh, that's decisive in our salvation. He wrote the book with a pastoral motive. Excuse me, he wrote the chapter with a pastoral motive. He anticipated great persecution great suffering for believers in the future. And when you get to the end of Romans 8, as a matter of fact, if you look at Romans 8, in the beginning it says there's no condemnation. If you look at the end of Romans 8, it says there's no separation. If you study the middle of Romans 8, what it's saying is there is no defeat for the believer. And, and the reason he's saying what he's saying, especially in those verses about foreknowledge, predestination, all the way to glorification, is when we suffer, when we really suffer and go through the darkness, it's easy for the devil to whisper in our ear and say, you're hurting. You know, if God was really there, if He really cared anything about you, you wouldn't be hurting this bad. And what Paul is telling us is that nothing will separate us from the love of God or the purpose of God. If we're, if we're believers. That's really what it's about. Now, Jamie talked to us about the fact that creation groans. This passage talks to us about the fact that believers groan. In prayers that cannot be articulated. I don't know this. I'm pretty speculative. I think when we get to heaven and when creation has been liberated from the effects of Adam's sin, that we're going to discover that the inanimate creation has properties and capacities which have been rendered undiscoverable by the fall. That maybe when the Bible talks about uh, rocks and hills and trees and stars praising the Lord that it wasn't mere poetry. And there may be shocking revelations which await us when we think about the verse that we were taught about last week about all creation groans for the unveiling of the sons of God. Now, that doesn't talk about creation as fallen. It's talking about creation as redeemed. It's set for, listen, unbelievers are not groaning and eager for the unveiling of the sons of God. Uh, did, uh, William Butler Yeats was an unbeliever. He wrote a poem called The Second Coming. It's full of dread. It's full of fear that Christ may actually come back. He was an occultic theosophist who... who Listen to the devil, not the Bible. And the idea that Jesus may return terrified him, even though he was one of the greatest poets in the world. Well, when we get to verse 26 in the passage, we continue this theme about the fact that we've got terrible liabilities. This is a place of great suffering. It's a place of losses and, and crosses. But we also have great 
assets in Christ Jesus. Paul writes, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We got liabilities. We are weak. We're a combination of vapor and dust, and we are loaded down. Most of the substance which make up that dust is which makes up that dust is, is just an amalgamation of, of, of weaknesses. But we also have the Spirit. And the Spirit helps our weaknesses. One of our deficits is we don't know what to pray. I'll tell you what I was praying last Sunday night as I walked out of this building. I was praying for Jesus to come. And I, I, I think we should make the last prayer of the Bible our, our first prayer of the morning. I said, Jesus, Lord, please send Jesus before one of Tyler's children have to take another bath. He's not here to bathe them. Please, please send Jesus. The last prayer of the Bible should be our first prayer of the morning. Come, Lord Jesus. I think one reason Jesus taught us the Lord's Prayer is because we don't know how to pray as we ought. Romans 8 says we don't know what to pray as we ought. But Christian, we do know that we need to pray. One of the dangers of teaching like this is it can inhibit us and make us worry that we're not quite doing it right, so we better not do it because I don't really know how to pray, so I better not pray. I don't really know what to pray, so I better not pray. No, 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 no. The only way to learn to pray is to pray. Read the Bible and pray. Get, get started. That's the only way to learn to talk. Think how grammatically uh, flawed we are when we first begin to, to speak our mother tongue. But we, we learn by repeating. If you think the Lord might want you to teach, teach. Preach. Will it be bad? Listen, I, the first sermon I ever preached, um, my great-grandmother was sitting on the front row, preached from Ephesians 2, and... Uh, she was deaf, and let me tell you, that was a blessing for her, because, I mean, it was awful, and I know it was awful, because one of my best friends told me it was awful. I knew it already, but he didn't have to tell me, but he did. But you, hopefully, you get a little better, you get a little better, and, you know, we grow in our eloquence, our, our fluency in prayer by praying. After we're instructed, God has not left us uninstructed when we pray. We have these great prayers of the Bible, the great intercession, maybe the first great intercessory prayer, Genesis 18. Abram praying for Sodom of all places. How often do you and I pray for homosexuals? People have that desire. Um, I think the greatest prayer of the Old Testament is Daniel 9. Daniel had lost far more than Harvest Church has lost. I'm not saying he hurt any worse than those three women who came up here and blessed us and humbled us and edified us by glorifying God after their sweetheart had entered heaven. But he lost his country. You know, when Joseph went to Egypt, he eventually was given a beautiful woman. I assume she was beautiful. When Daniel went to Babylon, he was turned over to the prince of the eunuchs. There's a reason you never hear anything about Daniel's children. 
He lost everything. Dr. Rari said, Dr. Rari was a math major. He said that from Daniel 9, 3 to 19, 32 times in 16 verses, Daniel identified himself with the sins of Israel. Now, I can't, I can't find 32. I only find about 25. And in one of those verses, he asks God to look down on the, this desolate sanctuary. I've prayed that prayer about Harvest Church. But he identified himself with the sins of his nation. We ever do that? So we're given examples of how to pray. We're taught to pray by Jesus himself in the model prayer for disciples, Luke 6, Matthew 6, Luke 11, the Lord's Prayer. But we're not just instructed in prayer, we're accompanied in prayer. One of the reasons the Holy Spirit took up residence in our hearts was to stimulate us and to lead us and to help us to pray. Now, there's a bit of controversy here, even before you get to the verse on predestination. Um, four days before the plane crash, the greatest preacher in Scotland, generally regarded as the greatest preacher in Scotland, went to heaven. His name was Eric Alexander, and he, uh, uh, he hadn't been able to preach in about 10 years because he had a disease of the vocal cords, kind of like Beethoven going deaf, so ironic. And he took one side of the controversy on what this groaning means. The great Martin Lloyd-Jones took the other side of the controversy. It's an interesting connection because when Eric Alexander was the pastor of a tiny church in a village of 3,000 people, he was invited to succeed Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel in London, a short walk from Buckingham Palace. The most prestigious pulpit in England. And you know what? He said no. Because he didn't feel he had God's permission to leave Scotland. He was in Glasgow when he died. And I just, I had studied what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this uh, passage, and I just happened to listen to one of Eric's messages. And here's what he said. He said, I don't think I've ever disagreed with Martin Lloyd-Jones on the meaning of a passage. And then he proceeded to disagree with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Because Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, this can't be the Holy Spirit groaning. Because God can't groan. And I think probably the majority of commentators would say that. Here's what Eric said. He said, didn't God groan when he looked over the pre-flood world and was sorry he made the world? Was that not? Now listen, nothing God does, nothing, nothing we do is exactly like what God does, okay? Never. But we are created in a, in a network of correspondences to teach us what God is like and to help us to know who God is. So some things have to correspond. And I, I think to make a point for, and, and I'm not going to adjudicate the controversy between Eric Alexander and Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'm not competent to do that. So I will back out and evacuate this one, okay? I'll leave it to you to make up your mind. But the plainest reading of the text is that it's the Holy Spirit himself who's groaning within us. Lloyd-Jones says that's impossible. 
Eric Alexander says, not, not so fast. Greatest preacher in Scotland disagreeing with the greatest preacher in England and Wales. But the Holy Spirit is helping us, even in wordless ways, to pray what we cannot articulate. I got a, a text from one of those three stricken women this morning. I'm going to paraphrase it. She didn't exactly say this. But paraphrasing, I think this is what she meant. Thank you so much for praying for me. Because I can't pray really right now. I can only groan. And sometimes we find ourselves in a place like that. And it's okay. The Holy Spirit has come to live in our hearts to move that along. Verse 27 says that he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. By the way, one of the ways we know that God the third person is really God is because we're told that the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God. He knows everything in the mind of God. That's one reason we know that the third person is deity. Because nobody can know the whole mind of God unless it's God. Here it goes the other way. It says that God knows the mind of the Holy Spirit. So what it's saying is that God perfectly comprehends the prayers of the Spirit. Now, one of the, the, the Trinity itself is a mystery. And one of the deepest mysteries about the Trinity is the fact that you and I really, with our microscopic brains contemplating an infinite reality, we can't really catch on to how two infinite omniscient persons within the Godhead communicate. I mean, how do you communicate with somebody who already knows what you're going to say? So it's easier for us to, to think of it in terms of communion, the in, intra-Trinitarian communion among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But basically the Holy Spirit is praying for us, with us, through us, if Eric Alexander is correct. And the Father is perfectly picking up on that. Think of the trouble God went to facilitate your prayer. Jesus sits at his right hand, the right hand of the Father, as your advocate. When Jesus died, he said, now you can pray in my name. He went to the trouble of dying so we would have a new license, a new liberty, a new privilege in prayer. Dare we neglect it? How much trouble the Lord has gone to that you and I might pray and, and pray all right, and then the great verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, um, I, I don't think anybody in those four families feel the good. Not in a way to balance out the loss they feel. We've We've mentioned here before that there is an equivalent verse in the Old Testament referencing one person, one believer. Romans 8.28 references all believers. In Genesis 50, Joseph's brothers are coming to grips with the fact that their, their father was gone. And they remember that their father's brother said about Isaac, 
when our daddy dies, I'm going to kill you. That's why Jacob took off and left Canaan to go live with his uncle. And they knew that. And now their daddy was dead. And they were worried that Joseph would seek vengeance for what they did to him. And it hurt Joseph deeply that they would think that he was capable of that. It hurt him deeply. And in response, he uttered what I would call the Romans 8, 28 of the Old Testament. He said, you know, it's true that you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. And we've illustrated this before in, in just this way. Uh, if, if, if the principle is somewhat elusive for you, let me illustrate it practically. I believe that the worst thing which has ever happened in the history of the world is the murder of the innocent Son of God by slow torture. Six hours leading to asphyxiation on the cross. What's worse than that? Nothing. I believe that the best thing which has ever happened in the history of the world is that Jesus died for me. He died for my sins. He bled that I might be clean. Even me. It's the same thing. You see how Romans 8.28 works. You see what God is able to do. It doesn't say that everything that happens is good. It says that God is able to make anything that happens to work together for the believer's good. The promise is not for unbelievers. In the most metaphysical observation in the Bible, the, the, the deepest philosophical thing Jesus ever said, he said about Judas. You know what he said? He said it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Even his birth could not work together for his good. And then, and when we got to admit, uh, you know, in those 13 years, Joseph was a slave missing his daddy and his little brother, being falsely imprisoned for an allegation of rape when he had just maintained the highest standard of chastity in the world. It didn't feel good. He couldn't feel the goodness. I don't know how long it'll take to feel the goodness. But we have the assurance. We have the comfort from God himself that he can make it good and that he will make it good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Okay, I, I say that out of trouble long enough, so some of you are not going to like this. I, I, and I'm, look, it would take one whole Sunday, two or three Sundays to preach on foreknowledge, two or three Sundays to preach on predestination, two or three Sundays to preach on 
calling, and what theologians call effectual calling. Two or three Sundays to preach on justification. Two or three Sundays to preach on glorification. We don't have that time to do that. That's not why Jamie chose Romans 8. And I'm not trying to start a fight, but I, I would like to make a point if you, if you would just indulge me. There are wonderful Bible teachers, revered Bible teachers, far more used by God than I, who say that what this means is that God knows before what you're going to do, so he predestines you. It's what we call prescience, P-R-E-S-C-I-N-C-E. We don't usually use that word, but it's a, you might hear it or you might read it probably before you would hear it. It just means God knows what he's, we're going to do, so he predestines us. Let me just tell you emphatically, that's not what it means. That can't be what it means. There are lots of reasons that that can't be what it means that I don't have time to go into. One reason that can't be what it means is because it makes God a spectator. Let me tell you something, friend. God is not a spectator. God is a player. He's not just a player. He's the player when it comes to our salvation. And knowledge bears more than one meaning in the Bible. It doesn't just mean he knows what you're going to do. Adam knew his wife Eve. Does that mean he knew all about her? No, it means he knew her in the deepest, most intimate way, physically. Amos 3.2 says, God says to Israel, you alone have I known among the nations of the earth. Does that mean he didn't know anything about the Philistines or the Egyptians or the Chinese? No, it, it meant that he knew his covenant people in the most intimate way spiritually in a way that he did not know other, other nations. And by the way, it bothers us so much that an individual could be elect. Do you deny that Israel was elect? Does it bother you that Israel was an elect nation? Does that really bother you? And the great question is, why, why does it bother you? Why does it bother you that salvation would be in God's hands and not your hands? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever made a mistake? You ever made a mistake that cost you, that penalized you, maybe relationally, maybe financially, maybe vocationally? You ever displayed an error of judgment? Ever done anything wrong? Let me ask you another question. Has God ever made a mistake? God ever done anything wrong? Are you fallible? Is God infallible? Let me ask the question a different way. If you could place the salvation of your children and grandchildren totally in God's hands or totally in their hands, what choice would you make? I was dumb enough to uh, preach through Romans in my 20s at a new church, and after I got to chapter 8, a lady stormed into my office fit to be tied, and she was going to leave the church. And I sat down, and we, we began to talk, and I said, Carol, let me ask you a question. Um, can a person be saved unless God does a work in his heart? She said, no. I said, great, Carol. We agree on that. I said, Carol, let me ask you another question. Uh, does God do the exact same work in every heart? Did he do the same work in Billy Graham's heart than he did 
that he did in the Ayatollah Khomeini's heart. Billy Graham and the Ayatollah Khomeini were still alive at that time. And later, one went to one place and one went somewhere else. And she said, no, he doesn't do the same work in every heart. I said, Carol, that's fabulous. We agree on that. I said, Carol, let me ask you another question. When does God decide he's going to do that work? Does he decide he's going to do that work on the day that somebody gets saved or the day that somebody rejects the gospel? Does he decide he's going to do that work when he made the world? Does he decide when he's going to do that work when that person was born? Or did he always know he was going to do that work? She said he always knew. I said, Carol, we agree. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. She stayed. I hope you stay. <laughs> now, one, one reason, one reason that, uh, that I'm not talking about pop culture like I did in the first service is um, because I didn't have time to talk about what I really wanted to talk about. And, and that is the question of what is it that we're predestined to? We're predestined to be conformed to Christ, to be made to be like Jesus. My dear, sweet brothers and sisters, is there any more glorious prospect than that? And is there any prospect harder to anticipate than that, that I could be like Jesus? Are you kidding? And yet that's the promise we have. That's the promise that we have in 1 Corinthians 15, which says, we shall be changed. I had a friend, I don't know if he still lives in Memphis. At one time he was in charge of Memphis in May. He was a great promoter. He was, uh, I think he was like the manager or the producer for Twila Paris. He introduced me to her and gave me a few minutes of private office with, uh, uh, audience with her when she came to Memphis. There was a line in one of her songs that uh, helped me decide to move to Russia. Uh, Nothing but love. Nothing but love in its purest form. Nothing but love would go into the storm. And um, he produced something called the Young Messiah Tour. Some of you may remember it. And my favorite song on the Young Messiah Tour was Phil Driscoll, this guy who could really play the trumpet. And he sounded just like Joe Cocker. It's amazing. And, uh, but he's a, a Christian performer. And uh, he had the part from 1 Corinthians 15 that says, We shall be changed. Try to Google that. We shall be changed. It was so powerful. Phil Driscoll singing, we shall be changed. 1 John 3, the great apostle says, hey, look at this. Behold. That's what behold means. It means, hey, look at this. Don't miss this. Do you realize everything John beheld? You realize everything John the apostle saw? You realize he was the only one at the cross? You realize he was the first disciple at the grave? You realize, I mean, er everything he saw? It's a horrible quote. He'll kill me for quoting him, but uh, our first year in uh, Memphis, somebody took my son to Colorado, and he got back, and one of said, Seth, what did you think of the Rockies? And he looked at me and said, have you ever seen the Alps? Well, think of everything that John had seen. And yet, and yet he said, hey, look at this. 
Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. What kind of love is it? That he's going to make us like Jesus. That we should be called the sons of God. And we talked about this before. I think the most heroic thing any Christian can do is to adopt a child. Because there's no exit strategy. We've got kids in this church who are moving into dangerous neighborhoods. They're targets in that neighborhood because they're obviously not from the neighborhood. They go down there anyway to incarnate the love of Christ. That's so much more heroic than anything I would ever almost do. I can't even imagine it. You know, I think that we got kids in this church who are planning to move to Muslim lands to be a missionary. I think, I think adopting a child is more heroic. You know why? You can move out of the neighborhood if it gets too dicey. You can live in Saudi Arabia, but you know where the airport is. There's no exit strategy if you adopt a child. It's an irrevocable commitment. And you want to give that child. You, lo you love that child. You give that child your name. You promise that child your estate when you die. You try to give that child every benefit of care and, and education. You cannot give the child your nature. You cannot. But you know what? God can. When God adopts us, he doesn't just give us the name, Christian. He imparts the nature of his son. What greater prospect is that? And you know what? It gives us a capacity to love. Notice that the Romans 8, 28 promise is for those who love God. Where do we get love from, for God? We get love for God from God. We love because he loved us first. Ours is a reciprocal, reciprocal answering, echoing love. It's real. One day we'll be glorified. One day we'll be perfectly like him. I've got to close, and I, 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 I don't want to steal the power from the man who wrote this. I want to compliment him by repeating it. Next to the testimony of the three widows, I think the most powerful thing we witnessed in this church in the last 19 days was the reading of Kenan's letter. Amen. And it made me think, I'm astounded that he had the coherence after the trauma he experienced to write something so powerful so quickly. And I was also astounded by the subject that he chose. Because the subject that he chose was an interpretation of the expression upon Bill's face the moment before impact. I don't know if it's still on our website, but if you didn't hear it, <laughs> you've got to read it. You, 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 you've got to read it. And the peace that he saw, the submission that he saw to the will of God, Bill's ability to project that in looking at one of his best friends and closest colleagues and the, the, the capacity of Kenan to read all that in that expression, something unforgettable and, and indelible. And I'm going to say something that uh, is pretty personal. I, Elizabeth loaned me one of Bill's Bibles. I don't think I said this at the memorial service. 
maybe I did. I, I can't remember what I've said to who, but um, there, Bill wrote something in the margin that was a new thought for me. And I'm always kind of overwhelmed when somebody teaches me something that never occurred to me, which happens more often than I'd care to imagine. But he, it, was the, it was Luke's rendition of the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary of Bethany. And of course, this happened very close to the crucifixion. It, was, it, it may have been the day before Palm Sunday. We don't know exactly, but it was close. And what Bill wrote in the margin was this. He said, I wonder if the fragrance was still there while they were killing him. What a thought. What a stupendous thought. And what Kennan sensed when Bill was about to die was that the fragrance of Christ's anointing on his life was still there. What fragrance is clinging to your life? What fragrance is clinging to my life? Do we sense this process of conformity that the Bible calls sanctification? Do, do we, have we known anything personally of the reality that John the Baptist projects in John 3.30 when he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Do you sense the decrease of yourself because you come to Christ? Have you told yourself no? Have you told yourself no when it comes to uh, what you look at on the internet? Have you, have you told yourself no in terms of chastity? Have you told yourself no when it comes to money? Have you told yourself no in terms of your speech? Do you bring the fragrance of Christ to a room? If not, why not? Never too late to start doing the right thing. It's never too late to repent. And maybe even for the first time, to claim the cleansing of blood and the promise of forgiveness vouchsafed to every sinner who casts his hope on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you cast your hope there? Is that where you repose? Depending on the grace and mercy of God found in the death of His only begotten Son. I pray so. In Jesus' name, amen.